I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Leadership rivals Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak criticised for lack of housing policy. New London buildings dominate the RIBA Sterling Prize shortlist. The capital weighs up its Olympic legacy a decade on from the Games. And is there a socialist case for traditional architecture? My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Douglas Murphy. Douglas is an architect, senior lecturer at Kingston University, and author of Nincompoopolis, Last Futures, and The Architecture of Failure. Welcome to the show. Hi, Marilyn. Thanks for having me. As Liz Trust and Rishi Sunak fight it out in the race to be next Conservative leader and Prime Minister, several major housing associations have raised the alarm over the distinct lack of property policy on both sides of the debate. With just two hopefuls left in the running, Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust, London news blog City AM, Inside Housing and The Evening Standard have zoomed in on what this could mean for the housing crisis in the UK. Despite record high rents, a serious lack of affordable and council housing stock and soaring house prices, all of these causing misery for millions struggling with increasingly challenging times, many have noted the absence of housing policy in either leadership agenda. Jonathan Roland from the National Association of Property Buyers said, quote, This is deeply alarming because right now a whole generation of young people are facing the reality of not being able to rent a property, let alone own one. This comes down to one issue and one issue alone, supply. Pointing to the 12 different housing ministers the government has seen in as many years, Roland stressed the importance of a, quote, vision that stretches to 5, 10 and 20 years and which politicians could agree on via a cross-party basis. Without such a consensus, we risk repeatedly failing to deliver affordable housing for millions of people. Possibly the nearest we have come so far regarding the policy is Truss's vow to put an end to, quote, Whitehall-inspired Stalinist housing targets uh, by replacing Labour approaches with deregulation and tax cuts, which the candidate to be our next PM claims will encourage developers to build more homes. So, Douglas, what's going on here? The housing crisis in its many various forms is affecting millions of people up and down the country and is perhaps particularly felt here in London, where rents and property prices are most inflated. Why are we in a situation where neither candidate seems to be treating housing as a priority in this contest compared to other issues? The answer to this is uh, multifarious in lots of ways. Um, There's a number of layers uh, going on. 
The first thing we need to remember, I think, is that um, Sunak and Truss are not pitching themselves to the country as a whole. Uh, they're pitching themselves to the Tory membership and to uh, the newspaper proprietors and, and, and so on and so forth. So the messaging that they're giving out is largely based on those constituencies rather than everyone else. And generally speaking, uh those constituencies are not interested in doing much about the housing crisis. So on the one hand, it's not an issue for them right now to talk about. Then another layer, I think, that comes into this is that um, as far as they're concerned, um, as Conservatives, the housing crisis is, in a way, a positive for them. Because the people who tend to vote Tory uh, are people who tend to own their properties and the people who own their properties while they are, you know, while they struggle to, say, get a larger property or blah, 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 while the, the housing crisis does affect them, basically they are reliant on the housing crisis um, for their wealth or for their um, sense of wealth. So we have a situation in this country where something like, and I'm just making a number up here, but something like half of all personal wealth is in housing, is in property. And nobody will do anything, not even a, a centrist Labour government will do anything about the housing crisis because it is so intrinsic to how people feel that they have uh, wealth of any kind, uh, that and pensions, basically. And so homeowners and pensioners are not people that the Tories want to upset. So that's another reason why they, why they won't do anything about it. A final point, I think, that's going on here uh, with regard to what Truss is saying is that um, you have an industry here of, of development which is not interested or it's not in their interest to um, lower the house, the price of a house. Uh, they have a product which they make and they want to keep that price high for the product that they make. So there's no real incentive to home builders and so on to speed up supply. They can they know they can sell their product. Now they complain about the planning system a lot, but generally speaking, the reason why they don't build more is because they don't need to. If you believe in deregulation or if you believe in in, in a lack of regulation as, as as Tories tend to, then you believe that somehow offering more incentives will or you claim that offering more incentives will will lead to uh, builders and developers making lots more, but that's not in their interest. So giving them more tax breaks and incentives won't actually speed up the amount they build. It'll just make them more profitable. And so those are the kind of main reasons why nobody's talking about it, because A, they can't, and B, they don't need to. So Jonathan Rowland, he also points out that the enormous number of housing ministers that we've had in recent years uh, very few of them actually sticking in the job for long. Um, why do you think that housing brief is such a difficult position in recent government? Um, I would say partly because there's nothing you can do in that role, basically. Because as I was as I was saying, you know, nobody's going to do anything about the housing crisis because it would be an absolutely fundamental shift in the British economy and would make most people feel poorer. Uh, and so nobody will do anything about it. And so the role, such as it is, is basically keeping things going as they are. So in a way, perhaps for an ambitious minister, you don't want to be there for long because literally you have nothing to do apart from, you know, reform the planning system perhaps or or, or, or what have you, or just generally try to remove red tape. Um, despite paying lip service to, to people who can't afford to get on 
the housing ladder. And if you remember Cameron and Osborne, they had a few things like help to buy, which again benefited the middle classes more than it benefited anyone who was struggling. Um, but if beyond paying lip service to, to that part of the of the country, they're more or less content to let wealth pile up within rising house prices. And just, just for listeners who might want uh, a strike, a bit of optimism, um, okay, Rishi or Liz... Uh, prime minister in their cabinet who would be the sort of dream housing minister it doesn't have to be a politician uh if if something could happen what would who would they be to shake it up i don't know if there's a person there um uh, there's really no one who's 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 really um saying what needs to be said and i think that we need to we need to get used to the fact that britain is relying on this for its sense of prosperity in, in many many ways and it's a, a very simple thing because you don't, no politician is going to make their constituency poorer deliberately. They just won't <laughs> because then they won't vote for you again. So, so it's almost like a, a, an oxymoronic thing. Now, I'm probably very pessimistic. There is obviously opportunities for greater supply. There's obviously opportunities for better um, quality within the construction of, of, of new housing and things like that. There's also arguments about um, you know, the distribution of houses in terms of uh, people who have very large houses who don't need to be in such, you know, these kinds of things. But again, these would be quite radical changes and it certainly is, would be very unlikely to come out of a conservative government. Uh, based on who they need to appeal to. Um, whether it would come out of a Labour government, well, current uh, messaging seems to be very uh, docile from Starmer's Labour, so I'd be surprised if they were interested in making any big changes there either. So speaking to the Sunday Telegraph, um, Liz Truss in- expressed her commitment to abolishing what she described as Whitehall-inspired Stalinist housing. Um, so, Douglas, firstly... What do you think is meant by um, Stalinist housing? Uh, and also, why do conservatives like Truss seem very focused on getting rid of targets? It's something that David Cameron did immediately, for example, in 2011, uh, 2010. Um, you know, also, coincidentally, we've got the mayor of London just now. He's pointing out in a tweet last week that um, City Hall has actually exceeded its target to begin 10,000 new council homes by 2022. Um, so surely that's an example of, you know, targets being something good because you can exceed them. With regard to Stalinist housing, I suspect what uh, Truss is really thinking of is uh, Khrushchevian housing. Um, but the things that the buildings that people associate with um, communist housing are from the 1950s onwards, mostly. However, I guess what Stalinist means in this case is the idea of like the five-year plan, the arbitrarily imposed uh, target that doesn't actually meet the needs. Uh, of of people, in fact, makes them suffer more because of its arbitrariness. And then you have, you know, if you're a free marketeer, you believe that um, it's impossible for planners to know what's going on compared to the market. The market will know better than the, than any planner ever could. And that's a kind of matter of faith for uh, for free marketeers. So they believe that. So a target is is morally bad. My target is morally bad. It's intrinsically wrong. Now, it might be a good point to note here that what, like, the construction industry love to donate to the Tory party. And so the Conservative Party is likely to, any policy that comes from them is likely to be with the needs and uh, 
wants of the construction industry in mind, and they're averse to targets. Why would you want to be imposed uh, when you could decide what you're going to do based on how you read the market and so on and so forth? In recent years, the appearance of new buildings has become an increasingly political topic, with groups on the right advocating for a return to traditionally styled, timeless beauty and Georgian design, uh, while also criticising those on the left for an assumed association with international modernism and the radical social ideas of post-war brutalism. In many ways, it's a false division, often perpetuated by right-wing social media pundits and opportunistic politicians with a stronger grasp of outrage and discord than the nuances of long-term built environment stewardship. However, in an article published on online blog Unheard, the political commentator Aaron Bastani, co-founder of Novara Media, has set out the socialist left case for traditional architecture. As conservatives push for more beautiful housing, Bastani warns the progressives uh, should not fall into the trap of quickly constructed modernist towers, saying, quote, we should be humble rather than dismiss the idea of those before us, regardless of which century they come from, while also asking what kinds of structures will fill our descendants with wonder. He goes on to say that, quote, the enemy of beauty isn't modernism, it's a society built on maximising profit and shareholder value. Douglas, this trad versus modernist debate has been raging for years. What are your thoughts on the political ties to each of the aesthetics? Right. Well, I have, uh, I'll try and keep this brief because I've got a lot of things to say about this kind of subject, about this particular subject. The first thing is that it's all, we should all remember that it's not about aesthetics. And I mean that on a number of levels, right? So, so what Aaron wrote about there um, is actually about procurement and very little about beauty. So the article in question uh, is actually about who chooses to build things, uh, where they get built, who pays for it, blah, 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 blah. That does not necessitate an aesthetic uh, for the buildings at all. So in a way, that's kind of moot. Um, now, the flip side of that is that, uh, you know, some some of the people who advocate for traditional architectural aesthetics have ulterior motives, and I shan't name names, but there are certain kind of people who are quite active in British politics uh, who use questions of beauty to mask uh, ideas about privatisation and about selling public land and about uh, you know eliminating council housing and things like that. So it can work both ways. Um, so there's that. So I think... There's nothing inherently aesthetic about questions of who owns land, who earns money from land, who owns housing, etc., etc. On the other hand, these debates rage and rage and rage and rage and rage. Now, I'm an architect, fine. I happen to live in a brutalist building. Uh, I put my money where my mouth is in that respect. But I also happen to love and admire... Uh, architecture from all ages and from all parts of the world and all of these kinds of things, right? And I don't necessarily see that there has to be these kinds of distinctions. However, some people do. Um, and so what we've got now is partly with relation to social media, or partly because of social media, we have an almost new version of the old German Entartete Kunst, uh, degenerate art argument, uh, which says that, you know, like there is timeless beauty 
Uh, and it's quite documented that like social media accounts that talk about traditional architecture are quite regularly found to have links with white supremacism, with like extremely right wing, like 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 fascist uh, tendencies. And we shouldn't discount this. Now, liking old buildings does not make you a, a fascist. However, it does seem that fa- like the kind of modern like teenage fascists in their bedrooms that we should definitely be afraid of but this kind of modern social media set of fascists are of that of that set that says there is something called beauty it is true it's real it exists and it is this and anything that isn't that is is degenerate and it just so happens that the kind of product of the social democratic consensus after world war ii is somehow the most degenerate possible now, <laughs> when it comes from the left, now Aaron is um, alongside a guy called uh, Nathan J. Robinson in the US who has been writing the same article, more or less, about uh, aesthetics of beauty and things like that. Now, they often rely a little bit on a new tendency, which we're seeing, which is for people to use research from neuroscience about how people react to images uh, with their eyes and and things like that and how people react to see symmetry or like biomimetic imagery and so on so that then argue that a certain kind of like art nouveau-ish classicism is somehow the most beautiful architecture so they're trying to use science to to suggest these things i personally think that's bunkum but it's it's part of the debate right now um so to round up these various points, it's a whole big mess of ideology and uh, aesthetics and politics and, and, and so on and so forth. And it's uh, unraveling it is, is an unbelievably uh, thankless task. One of the things that strikes me is that it seems like the, the whole debate around aesthetics kind of distracts and complate, conflates from the issue around scale and modernism. So, for example, if you look at something like the coronavirus vaccine, uh, it's manufactured and then you scale it up by just replicating it on a massive scale. But nobody would think that's controversial. It's just, you know, get on and do it in the fastest, most efficient way, copy and paste. Okay, And the same applies to cars or bicycles or whatever. Um, But with housing, uh, you know, as soon as you talk about scaling up a good design, then it becomes like a modernist monstrosity or something like that. So, like, is there something in there? uh, Is there a socialist case for traditional architecture? Maybe does it need to take account of scale and the scale of the crisis we're facing? Every building is a prototype, right? Uh, That's one of the big problems with construction, right? Like every building is on a different site. We've tried so much over the last century to make building like another form of mass production, but it never quite works. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, every site is a little bit different. And so that kind of level of standardization has occurred at the level of components rather than at the level of entire buildings. With regard to scaling up, you're completely right because... You know, people are sort of terrified of the idea that everything's the same, despite the fact that most house builder output is exactly the same. And just staying on that topic, then, is there a kind of danger with people on the left, like Bastani, championing traditional architecture? Um, could that then make it more likely that modernist council housing, something that was built on an epic scale, will get demolished? Of course. Of course. I, 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 I think so. Because, because you might, I mean, 
Aaron's article itself was quite measured. The way that it was pitched in the in Unheard, the publication, was as a kind of sensational um, uh, part of this kind of particular culture war regarding trad and modern. I think that it, if any intervention in that sense uh, does make it more likely that modernist council housing will get demolished, I personally believe... Uh, and this is a personal belief, but I think it's supported by the evidence. I personally believe that for a lot of the trads, especially the ones that have um, links to government and policy and so on, a lot of what they're talking about is actually about council housing and about tenure and about trying to eliminate anything that even smells of socialism to them. Uh, and so just even getting involved on the level of aesthetics in this way, I think, is potentially harmful, you know. Four of the six buildings vying for this year's RIBA Sterling Prize, which is the highest accolade in UK architecture, are in the capital. Uh, this was announced last week in the AJ. They include Hopkins Architects' revamp of a 1980s office block on the Broadgate campus at Liverpool Street, Henley Halebrow's Hackney New Primary School and 333 Kingsland Road, May Architects Sands End Arts and Community Centre in Fulham, and finally, Panther Hudspeth's Orchard Garden Scheme in Elephant and Castle. The two buildings outside London to be shortlisted are Forth Valley College, Falkirk Campus, Scotland, by Ryken Hall Architects, and the new timber-framed library at Magdalen College, Cambridge, by Niall McLaughlin Architects. RIBA President Simon Alford said the six projects shortlisted for this year's prize give cause for optimism and offered innovative solutions in the face of the housing and energy and climate crisis. He said, from major capital city regeneration programmes to new visions for higher education, they all share the ambition to deliver generous architecture fit for a low carbon future. However, as the UK slowly cools down from the hottest day on record, some critics claim this year's shortlist tells us the industry is still not taking its green credentials seriously enough. Uh, Smith Mordack, a recent guest on this show, wrote in the AJ, quote, While there are good things to learn from this clutch of sterling hopefuls, no single project can be heralded as an exemplar for addressing the great challenge of our age, which is how to design healthy, comfortable spaces in a challenging climate without making that climate change worse. Meanwhile, online, people have been sharing their surprise that Peter Barber Architects, the winner of last year's Neve Brown Award and one of the final three for RIBA's 2022 Affordable Housing Prize, has no projects featured in this year's Sterling Prize shortlist, despite recent eligible projects and growing acclaim across the industry and beyond. So, Douglas, what do you make of this year's shortlist? Which buildings stand out to you? I mean, I can't say I was thrilled. There are some good buildings on it. I think... um, Henley Hale-Brown's project in Hackney is, is, is a fine piece of urban, urban design and urban architecture. Um, they've been doing some very excellent work in, in London in recent years. Um, the May building, which I've not been down to, but the May building looks great. Uh, I think the Modeling College project has an incredibly fascinating plan. Uh, and I'm interested in it. In, it, in that regard, uh, that's quite a niche kind of uh, thing to think about, but it seems to be um, the way that its spaces are organised seems very interesting to me. As for the other ones, the, the Hopkins and the Elephant and Castle projects surprise me slightly because they seem um, rather normal, shall we say, 
they seem like normal buildings and I'm a bit surprised that they would be considered as as kind of top of the range. But that's an interesting question about what are we actually aiming for here. So last year, Grafton Architects Kingston University Townhouse won. Um, and again this year, uh, there's an emphasis on London buildings. Like London's coming up trumps in the, uh, in, in the Sterling Prize shortlist. Uh, has London always been this kind of epicenter for quality architecture uh, in the UK? Um, do you think this kind of domination of the shortlist is deserving of the capital? Uh, or perhaps we're potentially overlooking other parts of the country? Um, I don't think it's necessarily deserving, um, but it's true. The The problem is, it's the, it's the unbalanced epicentre of this, or centre of this uh, country. Uh, everything's, everything is focused on it. It's, we're not like Germany, where you have the government here, and like uh, industry here, and blah, 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 blah. We have one big city uh, that dominates the, the entire country, and that's really bad, uh, and not healthy. With architecture, I mean, I forget the numbers right now, but like the the architecture profession is overwhelmingly centered on London. And that's reflected that's reflected in in in, in terms of what gets commissioned down here. Um I mean to take to take the example of Scotland, one of the things that you know, on the one hand, it's extremely difficult to sustain a practice in Scotland uh, because there's not as much work getting built. But also, procurement is much harder. From what I from what I gather, it's much harder to prove that you're able to do a project um, up there and so on. It's hard, uh, and it's harder than it is down here um, because because the 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 culture is 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 not as not as strong. The culture amongst clients is not as strong, and and, and so on and so forth. So I think it reflects. I ref- it reflects a sad truth, which is that you know architecture is focused on London because the, the the UK is focused on London, economically and culturally, and blah 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 blah. So there's been a somewhat mixed consensus on the environmental credentials of this year's shortlist. On the face of it, the Hopkins 100 Liverpool Street leads the pack uh, with its zero carbon refurbishment of a 1980s office block. Uh, However, as the critic Ollie Wainwright points out in The Guardian, this claim is backed up by the offsetting of emissions elsewhere, uh, which includes some vast tree planting and land restoration projects in Tibet and Mexico. Um, so, Douglas, what do you make of this? Do you think the finalists are a good representation of green architecture for the future, or do the awards need a bit of a revamp in terms of how they how they reward and recognise good architecture? I mean, the scale of this issue is such that almost no project is worth rewarding. I think there are other interesting things. One is, as Ollie pointed out, um, being able to call something zero carbon is a bit of a smoke and mirrors a little bit. Um, So there's that kind of question. Then you say the word representation, and that's something that I find interesting. Uh, So, for example, the Sands End Centre, that's made of timber, and it's got walls that are stained green on the inside. (laughs) Like, that's a kind of joke. It's surrounded by trees as well, right? So it looks very eco in a weird way. Um, And... That is something that fascinates me personally about the extent to which green things need to look green in order for us to understand what's going on. Um, and I 
think none of them sort of suggest that in any great sense. But then the big question is, do they need to? So, for example, you know, it's entirely plausible that a big, shiny metal box is the greenest thing possible for a certain uh, for a certain situation, right? Like, it doesn't need to be covered in houseplants. But on the other hand, if you're rewarding projects for the kind of gesture that they make, then perhaps you need to take that kind of aesthetic sense of the of the crisis on board. This summer, London looks back on the landmark 2012 Olympic Games and the legacy it has left in the capital a decade on. London's bid for the Olympics, spearheaded by former athlete Sebastian Coe and backed by then-London Mayor Ken Livingstone, promised to be a, quote, model for social inclusion, vowing its legacy would be the, quote, regeneration of the area for the direct benefit of everyone that lives there. Prior to its regeneration into the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, Newham uh, was home to some of the most deprived and overcrowded wards in the country. Now, the 226-hectare park welcomes 6 million visitors each year, features a landscape of well-maintained meadows and wetlands, and of course various fabulous sports facilities. Uh, the East Bank Zone is emerging as a cultural hub as buildings for the V&A Museum, University College London, the London College of Fashion and Sadler's Wells and the BBC are taking shape. Nearby here East is also almost unrecognisable as a prospering innovation and technology business campus in what was previously the International Broadcast Centre. Meanwhile, across London, the Games were the catalyst for a raft of major transport investments, including the London Overground Ginger Line, which now weaves together the inner London suburbs in a giant loop, something we never had before in the capital. Uh, In The Guardian and Observer, the architecture critics Rowan Moore and Ollie Wainwright have reflected on uh, not just on how the Olympic Park looks today, but also how it stacks up against the ambitious proposals put forward for it at the start of the millennium. Uh, of the 30 to 40,000 new homes promised, only 13,000 have actually made it into reality. Uh, and of these, just 11% are genuinely affordable. Uh, pretty shocking considering it was a massive public project. Uh, meanwhile, across the four boroughs in which the site sits, there are nearly 75,000 households on the waiting list for council housing. So, Douglas, as someone who has delved into this topic quite extensively in your 2017 book, Nincompoopolis, what is your take on the Olympic legacy? Um, What do you think of the positive outcomes of the site 10 years after the Games? Uh, And do they outweigh some of the shortcomings uh, promised during the original bid? The park, I mean, the park's obviously pretty good, right? The park itself, um, people use it, it's popular, it ties... Stratford into East London. I don't. I don't really know if anyone's got serious objections to like the quality of the park or the fact that there is now a big old park in East London, where before there was light industry and and and, and rail sidings. So that fine. Uh, I think we can all enjoy that. Um, like what other what else people talk about the opening ceremony a lot and there's a kind of interesting thing where people look back at the opening ceremony as being somehow the last moment of like british togetherness which it totally wasn't because it was coming at a time of austerity it was like less than a year after the riots and so on and so forth like we were it, already two years into dystopian yeah world. exactly so um so i wouldn't uh i wouldn't subscribe to that kind of nostalgia but i do think I think who was it? Was it was it Livingston? I mean, basically, based on the idea that it would have taken decades to achieve the regeneration of that area, I suppose that they've done quite well. If you look at the sort of white elephant 
areas around, say, Athens or other Olympics, then, yeah, fine. It, uh, chlorine leaks from the swimming pool, notwithstanding. It's well used and so on and so forth. Now, with regard to the housing, now, it's interesting that Ollie Wainwright and Rowan Moore both wrote opposing articles for the same umbrella publication. Um, I personally, I came down more on the side of Ollie. Uh, I think the what happened with the LLDC, the London Legacy Delivery Corporation, I think is 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 pretty disappointing based on the ambitions. Well, they had a, a master plan for a lot more homes, yeah. and then that was scaled down to to introduce like muse houses and pretty squares. Uh, but really, originally, the whole the idea was to sort of carpet the area with athletes' village density. Um, to the extent that we'd be going there to parties where our mates are, you know, it would be a place where you'd go because it'd be full of housing. Yeah. Now, do you know anyone who lives there? No, I don't. Uh, but then, yeah. But then I don't know that many people anyway, so. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, so targets watered down, uh, different kinds of housing, different kinds of tenure. That's been very disappointing and is typical. On the one hand, it's hard to deliver um these kinds of things over a kind of 10, 15 year timescale. On the other hand, on the other other hand, there was a lack of um, desire to, you know, stand up to the whinging of, of builders and so on and so forth. The usual construction thing, oh, do we have to build that many? And it would have required more political support than was forthcoming for the original plans to be, to, to be delivered. And from what Ollie hints at in his article is that the mayor's office were not very supportive of the original plans that were laid forth. So, so sorry, I'm kind of drifting onto, <laughs> but it seems successful to me. And you see a very wide range of Londoners using it, you know. Um, but whether it serves the local community, well, um, there's all kinds of stuff like the Carpenters Estate and all these kinds of stories where, you know, their proximity to the Olympics was no help at all in, in terms of their quality of life. So obviously this is an interesting one. We're here on the uh, Greenwich Peninsula, home to the Millennium Dome, an area which I love, but I think is also like very much a product of its times. When we think about the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, that was commissioned under Tony Blair's Labour government. Um, And in hindsight, you could also sort of say the Olympic Park elements of it feel very much of their time and of that era, the approach to the architecture and the urbanism. Um, many have argued that despite some failings, the legacy and the games compel, compare well to other host city examples. Um, do you think the kind of outcomes we saw with the London 2012 Olympics, um, would that be achievable in the present context where we're living now? For example, if London was to host the Olympic Games again, if it was to commission all that stuff in the present era, would it be a whole lot better or would it be worse? Ooh, that's a spicy question. That's interesting. Um, it has been part of the, the London story for such a long time. It was the austerity. It was in development after 2008 or around that time. So all of a sudden it was like tied in with the global financial crisis. What would it be now? I mean, it's oh, it's difficult to speculate. I mean, on the one hand, the property boom in the last decade and a half in London has meant that like there isn't a large area of London that is waiting for regeneration in the way that it was. Now London is like so much cleaner and slicker and fancier than it was 15, 20 years ago. It's difficult to think what they would do. I mean, where would they put it? I mean, 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. Would you even bid for it now? We're now onto the culture section, onto the culture section now. Um, big stuff coming up. The uh, issue 01 of After Party uh, has been launched. Uh, After Party is a new zine uh, put together by a London-based collective that creates and champions platforms for underrepresented voices in architecture and design. Uh, first issue is called uh, For the Love of Power, and it's available to pre-order now online. Uh, have you had a chance to look through it yet? Uh, not yet, no. Yeah, I've, I've, I've encountered the, the, the people in After Party before, and they're all very talented, young, young, young people, very exciting. New piece of uh, uh, writing and publishing in the world of architecture. And then uh, at the uh, Photographer's Gallery in Soho, there's a show, uh, The Partisan Coffee House, Radical Soho in the New Left. Um, it's open now and runs until the 25th of September. Um, Soho's changed a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. It's very nostalgic to like look at. They have a very beautifully designed menu, which I've seen a few times over the years. Uh, um, that really is evocative of a very different world. Yeah, I mean, I guess nowadays um, you wouldn't be able to do something like that. It would basically be Twitter or whatever, you know, <laughs> like in terms of a gathering place for the radical left. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite interested. So there was obviously the, the coffee house was founded in 1958. 15.8 by radical historian Raphael Samuel, cultural theorist Stuart Hall and others. Um, obviously, I, I never went there. Um, it called itself the Anti-Expresso Bar, uh, became the home of the new left uh, in London for a short but significant period. Um, I guess, obviously, Soho's you know, n- not necessarily the sort of epicenter of intellectual debate and culture, but there are other places. Like, is there another cafe that's played that role in recent times or another bar or another neighbourhood? I mean, I, I live in Tooting. I, I haven't witnessed it in, to- in Tooting or Wandsworth, but I wish it was in, in outer London or inner outer London. Well, this is funny. This is funny. Now, this is perhaps a little too anecdotal, but um, I remember that for ages, various kind of, uh, I wouldn't name names, but various kind of luminaries of the intellectual left used to love hanging out in the, um, in the remnants of Old Soho. So places like the new Piccadilly was a haunt of writers until it shut down. All these like calves, like the Lorelei and so on, which were like little, little splinters in the new Soho that were just sticking out, and they're all more or less all gone. Was it like the hot pot? Yes, the stock yeah. pot. Stock, stock, stock pot, sorry. Yeah, yeah. That you can get a one. meal for like three pounds. Yeah, exactly. All of those. Now they're basically all gone now. There's like only a couple left, and they're the ones that are like listed, like. Pelicis in, 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 in Bethel Green or, or whatever. But that used to be a kind of like writer's haunt kind of uh, thing. The other one that I remember over the years was that like, and this is more from my proximity to the left, let's say, but uh, Sam Smith's pubs were always where people would go after a demonstration or a walk or a march or a, a lecture or whatever for better or for worse but that they the, uh, i think the culture around them has changed but definitely a, a decade ago that was always where you would find everyone after after being kettled so there you go uh, exhibition documenting and celebrating this fascinating yet little known moment in post-war british political and cultural history at the photographer's gallery um douglas it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on london um and where should our listeners go to stay up to speed on the things you're writing, uh, on your socials? Yeah, I can usually be found lurking around on Twitter and moaning about whatever it might be at any given point. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Lundown. 
a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.